Hi, this is Cliff Click, and welcome to today's podcast on build systems. And so when I say build systems, I don't mean um, Maven-like central repositories or, or ours crans, same purpose. I'm talking about uh, systems you use to build an artifact, and the artifact is something you're going to run, execute, debug, you're going to hand your customer, you're going to test, you're going to QA, whatever, but you're trying to build an artifact from other artifacts. So typically source code, and there's a compiler involved, but many times there's many other things involved. Um, in any large project, there's usually uh, a reference to when and how the product got built. So usually you call git to go get the ID, the user ID, the date stamp, the SHA, or whatever other things you're going to throw into the build product. Sometimes you touch a database, sometimes you're reading you know, other online information. Um, and as a system that's larger, there's usual multiple systems, there's a separate documentation producing, there's a separate this and that, I don't know what. So you get a lot of different pieces, parts that you're using to build your final product. The key thing that build systems all do is they maintain a relationship between the different components that want to get built, the different source materials that are used to build them, and generally tools or an activity that builds the thing. And they use time as a means to know what to build. So there's an incremental build as opposed to a complete build. Um, the goal being is that you don't want to build everything every time because it's too expensive, it's too slow, or the build steps have side effects you don't want to repeat or you want to have close control over. You know, maybe you, you touch a database on every build and you don't want to do that just because you clutter the database with whatever, I don't know what. Um, but it's clearly the case that as the project gets bigger, you want some sort of incremental build setup. Um, and the incrementality is not always within the language, like sort of built into Java C um, and any of the IDEs that do a language specific thing, usually will build that language incrementally well. But you're looking at other tools that are part of the greater system that are not built into your IDE sort of environment that you need to use to build your final release product and you want to do those build steps sort of incrementally. So the key thing that these tools, these build systems all uh, do is then they run the tools, they, they, they know when to run the pieces parts based on timestamps of files. So this is a key, a key takeaway that the main thing going on in the build system, the thing it has to get right, is to look at the file system timestamps of the existing artifacts and tell you what artifacts are now out of date. And then from there you can compute what steps need to be executed to go build. And then there's some language involved that describes the actual build step functionality. Um, and I'm, I'm not actually going to talk about that uh, up front, maybe a little bit down the way, but mostly about the notion that there's a bunch of files and those define the state of your project and they need to be in some sort of time order to be correct and a build system brings them into time order. It takes the things that are out of date with respect to what are the dependencies are supposed to be and runs the steps to get them in date. So, so we know what a build system is and hopefully everyone here uh, uses them on a regular basis. So what are the kinds of things that you can screw up in a build system? So let me start out by saying as build systems get larger and larger, they tend to cover lots more ground of unrelated things that are outside the domain of any individual programmer. In particular, any sort of release engineering generally includes lots of other pieces, parts that are not part of the classical programmer lifecycle. And then the programmers don't necessarily know what all those parts do. And then it becomes difficult to maintain and build and develop, you know, the, uh, change the build system. And I'll claim that this is a key fail that everyone needs to be aware of and work to defeat. 
And the key fail is you need to build engineer. As soon as you need to build engineer, it's almost always the guy who's got his head wrapped around the larger problem. He understands all the bits and pieces and he gets stuck with the build system because he's the only guy that understands the larger environment that everything runs in. And I claim that that's a fail, that all your programmers need to understand the larger system they're running in at least as much to be able to understand how the build system is trying to accomplish something and why the parts are there. And the reason for that is that there's no way that they can change the build system if they don't understand it. And there's no way they can fix a build break if they don't understand it. So as soon as you have a situation where there's one guy who's the dedicated build engineer, I claim your project's in trouble. You have a situation that isn't changeable by the people who need to have the power to change. Right? The programmers who want to put a new feature in, change how the world works, decide that the tooling they've been using for whatever, you know, they got Python, as soon as you get to 100,000 lines of code in Python, maybe it's too complicated and you need to switch new language. You can't do it because the build system has you locked in. because You don't understand how the build system works. You need to have a way to change what tools are going on. So, you know, having that build engineer basically immediately begins to limit your tool choices how you make your project. And I claim that's a fail that you need to break by having people understand the build system. And the build systems don't have to be complicated. I watch people make sort of same complex failures time and time again. So here are some, some other things that people do that I think are, are sort of fails in build systems. They have um, every step puke out all its output every time, win or lose. And if you do this for a few build steps, everyone knows they're chatty and no one cares. But as soon as everyone's chatty, you can't see a failure for the chattiness of all the successes. <clears throat> Instead, you really need to arrange every build step to output no more than the one line of what their file they're building and maybe what dependencies they're, they're building from. I'm building an X because of Y, and maybe the, the because of is a one-line word. I'm compiling, I'm jarring, I'm databasing, I'm touching, I'm whatever it's going to be. And the goal here is to have the output so simple that you can see the failure. Now, if you have a build step that reports a failure back, and so the build system is going to stop, then it should puke everything all on the planet, like far and wide, all the information you can. That's great. But on a success, nothing except the one line put out by the build system itself. If you need to have lots of other output, you have chatty tools and they're just going to be chatty, you make a subdirectory, run the chatty tool in the subdirectory, pipe everything to files for later in case you fail, and if you succeed, you step out of the subdirectory and delete it. You're done. You didn't need the, the subparts on the way you go. If the you know if you've got a fail, you have the entire directory there, you can go puke at it or your heart's content, surf it, whatever you're gonna do. But if it succeeded, nothing on the build output, so you can look at it and know, hey, it worked. Okay. Another sort of build fail I see that's pretty common is build systems that roll too many steps together and the interesting parts in the middle are themselves interesting, but somebody has a large complicated step. They build files along the way to go reach some end goal. Just break it up and build those files separately. Don't try to roll them all together. If you're gonna roll them all together, do what I said before, make a subdirectory, put all those temp files you're building in the subdirectory, do your final step, whatever it's gonna be, get your result, take it out of the subdirectory and then nuke the subdirectory. It's only there to hold this temporary file. You don't want the build system output be cluttered with temporary output from your particular favorite build step because everyone else is gonna do the same thing and pretty soon there are hundreds of random junky files floating around that nobody knows what build step they came from or if they're required to be up to date, or if they are or are not, you, you can't tell because the files confuse the results. So don't have junk output in your final printed output. Don't have junk files left lying around at the result of the build step. Clean them all out. The easy way to do it, build in a subdirectory, nuke it when you're done.
Okay, another uh, fun fail that happens to me a lot. I do a lot of traveling. I do a lot of speaking with traveling. I'm in airports. I'm on airplanes. I'm in places with poor and bad Wi-Fi. And I have these build systems that will touch the Wi-Fi as part of the build. And that is they'll go out to the internet and do something. And they're all great when you're running in the office where you have this super high-end Wi-Fi slash T1 fiber optic whatever experience. But I am some no-name coffee shop between, you know, from one train station to the next or I'm hopped on a plane, whatever, I'm often in a situation where the Wi-Fi exists, but it's extremely slow. And as soon as this thing runs out and touches Maven and starts asking questions of Maven, hey, how about, is this package up to date? This one, this one, this one, this one. Okay, what well, the answer comes back is, the Wi-Fi is going to take half an hour to touch what will take milliseconds in my office, and that is normal. It, it, it won't fail because I don't have a Wi-Fi. I do. I can get text mode emails pretty straight, straightforwardly, but anything larger than that is going to take minutes. And suddenly, I can't do a build in the airport. I got idle time. I'm waiting for my plane. I can't do a build because it's touching the Wi-Fi, and furthermore, it's touching it very slowly. I can turn off my Wi-Fi, disconnect, I probably have to repay a new charge to reconnect to get my email, and then the build system might go fast again because somebody says, oh, no Wi-Fi, I'll skip this step. Don't bother, don't do it. You don't want to touch the internet during your build for any reason. And that brings me to this next um, sort of build fail, and that's going to Maven every time or some other package update system by default. And the fail for that one is that if you're trying to make any sort of robust, reliable software, you take an unknown update when you didn't expect it, you get you go from having one set of bugs to a, a plus plus set of bugs from the new package you didn't get, you didn't expect. Those package updates should be carefully maintained and controlled. Oh, but you say I have a version number in my Maven script or whatever that I can pick what version you want. That's great. If you have a version number and you're at that version, you don't need to be touching the internet. In fact, you don't need to know anything about Maven at all. If you've got the right version number, why not just throw it in your package in the first place? Not have to try to bring it down over the internet. It should be a one-time install as part of my setup to get a build done to pull in that package. I'm just going to throw it into my GitHub repo. The damn jar is a binary. Throw it in the GitHub. And if I want to update my version numbers, I can update my version numbers, I mean my, my, my jar version number, by going to Maven and getting the jar of question. And then I put it into Git as a special uh, uh, you know, Git update step. Because that means if I want to roll backwards in time, I don't have to re-download antique versions of jar files from Maven in an effort to build an old system to debug some customer who's running you know, two versions behind things. I can do the build with everything I have in Git. I don't need to go somewhere else to go get pieces, parts, to go do a build. Another thing build systems should be able to do is build a new environment from scratch for a new user. And this is just goes straight to onboarding, but it also lets you know what tools that you need to have um, in order to, to produce the product, because those are the tools you need to have to go back to an old version when you're trying to debug what happened you know, last week and last month. So it, beha it behooves you as part of your testing procedure to make a new user from scratch, like completely brain wiped clean, and then hit the build install, you know, the make install, whatever it's going to be, and have it bring in all the tools that you need. And you can validate at that time that the make system is actually going to 
produce an environment that will build things from scratch the first time. That first install has to touch the internet. You're expecting to have a good connection. It's going to be slow. We all get it. The incremental one of that should not be touching the internet. It should be instantly fast and should have the correct tools. And if I roll my environment backwards or forwards, you know, using Git, I should be able to do a, you know, a, a clean and then a build and have it validate the correct tools. And if they're not, complain. So you also have to test that you're backwards compatible here with your tool chains and your make system. Okay, so having said all that, I've said make a few times. Let me say that I have played around with Gradle a lot and Ant a little and Maven a fair amount and Perl and Python, a few other build-like systems. And of them all, I'll say that make, the old school GNU make, beats them all. And wait, how can that be? Okay, the answer is, is that it's blazingly fast. It's all the bugs are beaten out of it. It does the file system thing where it knows and mentions and names the files directly very straightforwardly. The build steps are in shell script. That's yeah, fine. It's whatever it is. And, and it, it has all the dependencies done the right way. It has this funny syntax and you have to deal. I looked at Gradle. Gradle has a funny syntax too. I had to learn Groovy or some related programming thing. And then my experience with Gradle was about mm, two to three times a month, you know, once a week on average, something like that. It would fail to get the file dependencies correct. It would leave an artifact that should have been updated. I would then spend the next hour debugging a change that I knew I had downloaded, made, or what otherwise, and realized finally that Gradle had screwed up and I had to do a clean and rebuild to get it correct. This happened fairly often. So it was enough to know that I don't know what was the bug with Gradle was, but it was definitely buggy. The Gradle daemon startup thing did not reduce uh, compile times like worth a spit on any amount. On, on the, the you know, projects of the scales looking at, so uh, several hundred thousand lines of code and thousands and thousands of files, make would you had to do nothing, just an up-to-date check, would be instantaneous, whereas Gradle would still take like 30 seconds to do nothing. And it was uh, extremely complicated where all the pieces, parts that went into the Gradle build came from. You can make a make that's fatally complicated, but you don't have to. And for whatever reason, the, the young guns who were all excited about Gradle and convinced me to give it a try, built the most complicated thing I'd ever seen, and it seemed that was the default. You were going to include parts from all over the place, and the end result was it was very slow, it was very fragile, it could only be hacked on by a handful of people, like one or two out of a 50-person team, and it broke constantly. I would just stay away, and I wouldn't. I won't touch Gradle again with a 10-foot pole. Um, there have been several other efforts. I've looked at other make systems, and the same sort of behavior arises. What you really want is some way to mention files and dependencies between them. These are the output files, these are the input files, here's the build step, and then, you know, whatever convenient, easy way to describe these things sort of in bulk, and that's a bunch of people do it different ways. Make has its file pattern matching rules of doing, you know, file globbing and grep-like behaviors uh, and shell script. Gradle had a different way to do it. Um, I can't say that either one of those was excitingly better or worse. What I'll say is Make was fast, Make was reliable, Make was everywhere. I was not going to touch Gradle again. Okay, enough wailing away on Gradle and Make. Um, I'm pretty much done here. I, I've yet to see a reason not to use Make, um, even for all kinds of modern build things. And uh, you know, even with Java and its bad interaction with Make, it's still better than using Gradle's bad interaction with the world. Uh, and I've certainly worked on projects of sort of very large scale and had uh, you know good success with old school tools. You know, maybe the new guys have some new cool steps they figured out, but the old tools are there for a reason. They really work. And, you know, give it a shot and see what you think before you pass it off as being old school. This old stuff, it like, 
it does the job. All right, and enough whining about uh, build systems. And this has been Cliff Click, and may all your builds be successful. Thanks. Bye bye.